2: Good news is rare to come by these days, but for UK savers and investors, there may well be something positive in the pipeline. The government wants to make it more appealing and easier to save in a tax-free way. Millions of us already save and invest tax-free using ISAs, or Individual Savings Accounts to spell it out in full. And with interest rates and tax bills rising, ISAs have become an even more valuable part of every investor's portfolio. There's just one problem. Not enough people are aware of their tax shielding benefits. So grab a notebook because after listening to today's Money Clinic, you'll be fully across all the options and what might change. Welcome to Money Clinic, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's consumer editor. So let's start with the good news. The Treasury is looking for ways to simplify ISAs and entice more investors to use them. Officials have been meeting business leaders from the financial and investment community, confirming my recent FT front page story that they are open to ideas. But there's bad news too. There's already speculation about the future of the Lifetime ISA, a product especially designed for the under-40s, which I know many listeners will hold. We're going to be discussing why that would be a very bad idea. And another controversial thing, one of the ideas being floated, is that ISAs could be tweaked to convince savers to buy more shares in UK-listed companies. Well, before I introduce our experts, a reminder as always... If you invest, your capital is at risk. We will be discussing different investment choices and investment strategies on the show today, but this is not intended as an investment recommendation or financial advice. So let's meet our experts. Joining me in the studio today are first up, Jason Hollands, who is the Managing Director of Best Invest, the online investment platform. Jason, in a sentence, tell us what you think is the best thing about ISAs.
3: Two things. One, whether you choose to save cash or invest in an ISA, all returns are tax-free. And secondly, they're really, really flexible and you can access your money whenever you choose.
2: And a pleasure to welcome back Sarah Coles, Head of Personal Finance at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Sarah, the same challenge to you, please. I have to agree with Jason. So yes, it's the the tax savings
0: and the flexibility. So you can pay in in one go, make regular payments, pay in whenever you fancy it, and you can take the cash whenever you want. They're kind of a product that really can fit around your life.
2: Yes, much more flexible than pensions, for example. And last but not least, Brian Burns, who is head of personal finance at Moneybox, the savings and investment app. Brian, what do you think is the best thing about Isis?
4: So for me, it's the positive saving and investing uh, habits that they create. The most recent figures show that 12 million people are subscribing to ISAs in some way, shape or form. So that's 12 million people that are building their financial resilience with Mm a cash ISA, saving for their first home with a lifetime ISA, or investing for the future with the stocks and shares ISA. So it's those habits, I think, are the most powerful thing about ISAs.
2: Well, lots to love about ISAs. But... We're not going to assume any knowledge on this investment masterclass. So let's start with the basics, how people can use ISAs to both save and invest tax efficiently. So, Sarah, you've got some stats to share with us too. Yes, all the fun
0: stats. So <laughs> if I can start, start with some of the rules. So the, the basic overall rules, you can save up to £20,000 a year. Um, into an ISA. And that's split across all your ISAs. So that's including things like stocks and shares ISAs and also cash ISAs. So that's like a pretty generous allowance for most people. Plus, children under the age of 18 also have a junior ISA allowance, and that's of £9,000 a year, which is generous as well. They're already hugely popular. And and this is my nice big figure. Overall, there's almost £750 billion held in ISAs. (laughs) Uh, so there is there is usually there's more paid in any one year into cash ICES than in stocks and shares ICES. So another stat is that since the global financial crisis, we've paid on average 44 billion pounds a year into cash ICES. And that's wow. roughly twice what we pay into stocks and shares ISAs. And it's worth saying that we know that because the rates on cash ices have gone really high, we know that um, money's really flooded into cash ices this year. So Bank of England stats show a record £9 billion saved into cash ices this April alone.
2: Wow. Well, thank you for all of those. And just to dispel another common myth, lots of people think £20,000 is the limit of what you can hold in an ISA account, but it's not. That's just the annual subscription. It is very generous, as you say. Now, Brian, I'll bring you in here. Assuming no knowledge... Can you try and explain the tax benefits of ISIS?
4: Absolutely. So the tax benefits of ISAs is that you don't pay any tax on the growth within the ISA wrapper. So whether that comes from savings interest, investment growth, or a government bonus, for example. So let's say you're in the fortunate position, you've got your 20,000 to put into an ISA, uh, or you've got your 20,000 to save. If you put into a savings account outside of an ISA and you get 5% a year, which isn't too difficult at the moment, given where interest rates are, that's a £1,000 of savings interest across the year, which is really nice. But if it's outside the ISA, that interest is taxable. Now, you might be able to reduce that tax amount with your personal savings allowance, but it is a taxable amount of money. If you did the same thing with a cash ISA, for example, and you get your 5%, that's a £1,000 again of savings interest, and that is completely yours to keep. There's no tax due on that whatsoever. And it's the same with investment growth with the stocks and shares ISA, and it's the same with the government bonus with the lifetime ISA. It's all yours to keep rather than having to pay some of it over to the taxman.
2: And the same goes for dividends. If you've got an investment ISA, You own shares in a company or a fund that pays a dividend to its investors, a share of the profits, if you like. There's no tax on that. But again, outside of ISAs, dividends are taxable and those kinds of taxes have gone up in recent years.
4: Exactly, which just makes the ISAs even more beneficial under the current taxation regime.
2: Excellent. Now, Jason, as our investment expert, could you tell us a bit more about how people could use stocks and shares ISAs to invest?
3: Sure, yeah. I mean, a stocks and shares ISA can be used to invest either directly in the individual shares of companies, and that's something that you know typically appeals to people who are more confident and they enjoy researching companies. But most people choose to invest through funds, and that would include investment trusts and exchange-traded funds. And that's where your money is pulled together with lots of other people's and is invested on your behalf across a diverse portfolio of investments probably a lot more than you would be able to do doing it directly yourself and any gains made on the growth and the value of your investments is tax-free so won't be subject to capital gains tax and if your investments generate an income such as dividends from shares or fixed interest from uh, bonds that's tax-free too. I think importantly when you take your money off from ISA there's no tax to pay, and you don't have to disclose your ISAs on your tax return. Mm. And that's very different to a pension where there are some nice upfront tax boosts, but when eventually you make withdrawals from your pension when you're retired, uh, those withdrawals will be potentially subject to income tax, at whatever your marginal rate is at the time. So ISAs are, offer a, a tax-free returns on the way out, whereas pensions offer tax boosts on the way in, but are taxable on the way out.
2: And as you say, the combination of those things, having the flexibility of ISAs and then the tax advantages of pensions when you get a bit older is something that people in retirement love to combine. Absolutely. Well, thanks for explaining that, Jason. And lots of people certainly, because you can take your money out when you want it, see them as a retirement bridge. You could take money out of ISAs in your 50s and your 60s while you're waiting to take pension or state pension cash. So we dealt with the basics, but some listeners might be thinking, hang on a minute, these tax benefits, they sound great, but there are a lot of rules and different products and potential choices I could make here. Do we think ICES need to be simplified, as the government is now suggesting? Sarah, I'll start with you.
0: Well, I think, I mean, it is worth saying that the ISO range is fantastic. And the key here is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but there are some things that could be simplified. So, if you take, you know, the rule about how many ISAs you can pay into each year. So at the moment, you can only pay into one ISA of each type. So you can pay into one stocks and shares ISA and one cash ISA. And we just think this is needlessly complicated. So if you have a pension, for example, you pay into as many pensions as you like each year. Mm. And so we think the same rule should apply for ISAs as long as you stick within sort of the overall limit. And that would just make it a lot easier to open them, to subscribe to them, to transfer them. And it just kind of takes away a a level of complexity. I, I think, Some of the suggestions that have come up about stocks and shares, mixing stocks and shares ices with cash ices, that looks like it's going to make life quite simple but actually that creates quite a lot more extra complexity so if you think for example about someone who just offers a a cash isa at the moment what do we really expect them to do do they sort of bolt on a bit of investment you know will that become easier for people who just want a cash isa if suddenly they've got to have lots of communications about investments or will we not force them to bolt on that that investment bit and have some offer cash some offer stocks and shares and some offer a mixture and actually that makes more things more complicated
2: overall Brian, you were nodding along to some of the points Sarah made there.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think some of the devil will be in the detail here. So there's a lot of rumour and speculation about what is going to come under the umbrella of this ISA simplification package that the Chancellor is working on. And some of those will make life simpler for consumers. But some of the things that have been rumoured, we think, will possibly make things even a little bit more complex than they are today. So I think, as we've all said today, ISAs are absolutely fantastic. They are brilliant. They are working. There are tweaks that can be made here or there to future-proof these, but from our perspective, it's very much kind of evolution rather than revolution.
2: Okay. well, up next, ISAs are a fantastic tool for UK investors, but should they be used to enhance the advantages of owning shares in UK companies? Now, Jason, the FT's reported this as one of the ideas the Treasury has been talking about with industry groups. Could you explain the thinking behind this?
3: Yeah. I mean, there's been a concern brewing for some time that the UK stock market has steadily become somewhat unloved. And the valuations of shares on the UK markets are certainly very cheap compared to similar companies internationally. And that's leaving them prey to buyers and to private equity funds. And likewise, there's also been an increasing trend for particularly innovative UK companies in areas like tech, choosing to list on the US markets and bypass the UK and there's also been a number of cases of where UK listed companies have up sticks and moved elsewhere mm. because essentially they can command higher valuations. So the government part of their thinking is probably to encourage greater investment in UK equities to uh, provide that sort of boost and support to the domestic stock market or the, or the UK stock market and One idea that appears to be doing the rounds is to create this additional ISA allowance that would solely be restricted to UK shares.
2: So that would be on top of the £20,000 you
3: get
2: an extra UK bit.
3: Now, obviously, while while more tax-free allowances are always a good thing in my book, Mm -hmm. it might not work quite as intended. So firstly, such an allowance would only really appeal to people who are already fully using their £20,000 core ISA allowance. Now, that's a relatively small sum of people. Yeah,
2: not many uh, listeners, uh, I'd wager.
3: Got... Not many listeners. And do remember, I mean, even though it is around about fourteen percent of ISA subscriptions are at the twenty thousand pound mark, do remember that a lot of that will be cash isas So not all those will be going into investments. Mm. But then if you think about it, the people who who were able to do the UK only isa allowance having fully used used their twenty thousand allowance a very logical thing for them to do would actually to be invest, to invest less in the UK within their main ISA allowance. So it might not necessarily drive the volume of new flow into UK equities that perhaps is intended. Mm. And I think there's also some technical considerations here. How do you define um, the types of companies that would be or, or investments that would be allowed in that UK-only allowance? For example, if the definition was simply you know, any company that was listed on the UK stock market, what would be there to stop someone buying a US or global exchange traded fund or indeed an investment trust that invests in China or emerging markets or the US? So you'd have to have um, probably a number of clarifications as to what you could hold in that allowance.
2: Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, and lots of the FTSE 100 majors do... Maybe up to three quarters of their revenue raising outside of the UK, even though they're listed in London. Now, Sarah, drawing on the research that Hargreaves Lansdowne has done, UK investors are already very keen on owning FTSE listed companies. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so there is a huge home bias in the way that that, that we invest
0: in our ISAs. So we we estimate that around 147.5 billion pounds is already invested in. So that's UK shares. It also includes bonds and collective investments. Um, and that's in stocks and shares ISAs. And that's actually quite a conservative estimate because it only includes those things that solely invest in the UK. If you think about that, that's a weighting towards the UK, which given the percentage that UK companies make up of the worldwide total is quite a heavy weighting. And it's even more striking when you look at shares. So in the past year, 80% of shares traded on the HR platform, they were UK equities. So technically, you know, you're talking about this sort of trying to encourage investment in the UK, you don't really need a whole new ISA allowance, you you could just increase the overall allowance, and that would automatically increase in sort of investment into the UK. So it's, it's already very popular. And there is a really easy way of sort of cracking this particular nut rather than going out and inventing a whole new type of ISA.
2: Mm. Well, Jason, another criticism, if this strategy were to be implemented, is whether people should invest more in UK equities right now. As Sarah said, there's already quite a lot of home bias from UK investors. But the actual performance of UK stocks, on the one hand, they could be seen as very cheap at the moment. (laughs) On the other hand, they might stay cheap for a while longer yet.
3: True. And, uh, you know, global equities are dominated by the US. And over a number of years, US equities have significantly outperformed UK equities. But look, you know, investing is all about the future outlook. And there's no doubt that large, internationally focused FTSE 100 companies are currently very, very cheap. They're standing at the widest discount to global equities in decades. And they're also very cheap compared to their longer term average valuations And dividends are high. Now, why is that? It's partly down to gloom about the UK economy and investors often confuse the UK stock market with the domestic economy, which really isn't the case, because as you highlighted, uh, these are generally very, very global businesses. But it's also partly down to the makeup of the FTSE 100. It has negligible exposure to areas like technology, which, of course, has been one of the best areas of of Mm. the market to be invested in in recent years, and where valuations are rich. But also the UK, particularly FTSE 100, has quite high exposure to parts of the market that ESG-minded investors steer clear of, like uh, fossil fuel companies, commodities, Mm. tobacco. BP, Shell, yeah. Absolutely. But there's an opportunity here. It's always a good starting point to buy shares when they do look cheap compared to where they've traded over the longer term. Of course, things can stay cheap for for a while or for for good reasons. But I do think actually UK equities do look quite appealing at the moment. But of course, that doesn't mean that people should be strong-armed to invest in them every year. And of course, there are other ways that the government could encourage investment in UK companies. A really major one would be to restore the tax credits that pension funds used to receive Mm. on UK dividends. Since those were scrapped by Gordon Brown, the amount of money that UK pension funds have invested in the UK market has plummeted. Mm. Um, Of course, why not scrap stamp duty on UK share purchases? That's
2: the one tax that you do have to pay, even within an ISA. Exactly. It's not very much. It's only 0.5% of the value of the UK shares or investment trust that you would be purchasing. But nevertheless, it's a tax that you wouldn't have to pay if you were buying, say, an ETF, a fund or shares in one of the big US tech stocks.
3: Correct. You know, that isn't a tax that you're paying when you're buying shares in an ISA in US companies. And although it is you know, in some ways a token amount of money and probably wouldn't drive someone's decision as to whether to invest in a UK company or not, it would certainly be the right signal.
2: Well, Brian, to bring you in here, Moneybox customers who invest on your app tend to be younger. Do you think the idea of investing in UK equities would appeal to them?
4: So it absolutely does. But I think, as Jason mentioned, they already have their £20,000 ISA allowance to do that. And I don't think anybody's looking at that £20,000 thinking it's really in any way stingy. It's quite a generous annual allowance. So we really think that this suggestion loses track of what ISA simplification is supposed to be all about in our eyes. And that's supposed to be making things simpler for consumers to be able to make really good financial decisions and hopefully instill kind of good saving and investing behaviors in them for life.
2: Now, one area where I think we're both aligned in thinking efforts and resources should be focused on is this issue of fractional shares. Now, I've quoted you in a piece with the FT before explaining what these are. If you want to buy a share in, say, Amazon or Apple, for example, using an investment app, as many young people do, because these are the brands that they see around them in everyday life – The prices of these US shares are quite high. I mean, I think the last time I looked, I think shares in Amazon and Apple were both well over $100. So the technology exists now to be able to buy smaller bites, little pieces, known as fractionals, um, of these shares. But that's something that technically the ISA rules don't allow. So tell us more about that.
4: Well, I think First of all, I would like to be very clear and say that we firmly believe that investing in fractional shares via an ISAP is allowed at the moment, and there's legal opinion to to back that up. The problem is that the ISAP regulations were written before fractional shares were a thing, and therefore yeah. it's not explicitly called out within the regulation. In
2: the 1990s, I think.
4: exactly. Yeah. So. The regulators are reading the same regulation that, that we're reading and coming to a different conclusion, which in our opinion is not in the best interests of consumers and investors. So, some investors do like investing in individual shares, as you say, things like Tesla, things like Apple. They're very, very popular, but as you say, their share prices well over 100, 200 pounds when you convert them over into into sterling. So you would have to be able to invest quite a lot of money in order to be able to build a diversified portfolio of Mm. those companies that you're interested in. And the strange thing is, fractional shares are allowed, and you can build that diversified portfolio outside of an ISA, but for some reason at the moment, there is just this discrepancy between whether it's actually allowed within the ISA or not. And we think, as I say, we firmly believe that it is, but we're just calling on HMRC and Treasury to clarify that in the autumn statement and just get rid of any uncertainty for investors, because this is a really good way to get people engaged with investing early in life, investing in companies that they're interested in at, at amounts far smaller than if they had to buy a full whole share.
2: Mm, well, fantastically explained there, Brian. It's a story I'd love to write um, if they do clarify the rules on that. Now, finally, let's talk about the simplification of the ISA product range and the future of the lifetime ISA because this is one thing that people have been talking about. Now, Brian. I'll stick with you. The lifetime ISA, the Lisa, as it's called by some people, it's come in for a lot of criticism. Does it deserve its place in the ISA range?
4: I think it absolutely deserves its place. And again, our view is it should be absolutely the cornerstone of this proposed reform. So I think The small amount of criticism it does typically come in for is quite often from providers who don't offer the lifetime ISA. And all you need to do is spend a little bit of time with people who save and invest into the lifetime ISA, and you will hear that they absolutely love it. And obviously they're going to love something that gives them a 25% bonus.
2: Well, yes, explain oh. to listeners who might not know how it works.
4: Exactly. So the, the lifetime ISA, basically you can use £4,000 a year from your ISA allowance. You can put that into the lifetime ISA and the government will top that up by 25%. So that's an extra £1,000 a year on top, of your, on top of your savings, which is amazing. You can use that for two purposes. One is to buy your first home mm-hmm. up to the value of £450,000. Or the second one is to supplement your retirement income. You can withdraw from the lifetime ISA tax-free from the age of 60. If you don't use the lifetime ISA for either of those purposes, there is a 25% penalty on your money if you go to withdrawal. So that's the basics of how it works.
2: Okay. And then the criticism of the lifetime ISA is that there's a lot of rules, there's a lot of potential things that could trip up um, young people. The 450,000 property cap, I have to say, is probably the thing that listeners complain to me the most about. But nevertheless, give us a flavour of how many young customers are using the Lifetime ISA on your app and their enthusiasm for this product.
4: Well, this is the thing. We have hundreds of thousands of customers using the Lifetime ISA. And as I say, if you spend any time with them whatsoever, they absolutely love it. We have thousands of verbatim comments saying, this is absolutely incredible. It's helped me hit my financial goals that I never thought was a possibility. And as I say, you're obviously going to like something that gives you free money, but on top of that, we have loads and loads of comments saying, this has turned me into a saver and investor, which I never thought I could be. Wow. It is getting people in their 20s, in their 30s, into the habit of saving and investing. They are typically hitting a financial goal, an amazing financial goal, of purchasing their first home within three, four, five years of the lifetime ISA. And they are taking those saving and investing habits into the rest of their life. So when I say that this is what that should be the cornerstone of the ISA reform, That's what I mean in terms of instilling these saving and investing uh, behaviours. And again, like the rest of the ISA universe, there's areas that can be improved and future-proofed. As I say, we are calling for that £450,000 cap to be uh, be regularly reviewed Mm. in line with house prices increasing. And we are also calling for some sort of emergency withdrawal allowance within the Lifetime ISA. But these are small tweaks here or there that will just help people build more confidence in these products going forward.
2: Mm. And final point on the Lifetime ISA, there's two versions. You can save up in cash. So you get that cash deposit. might also get a little bit of interest, depending on who your provider is. But you can also use it to invest in stocks and shares. Now, Sarah, at the moment, you have to be over 18 but under 40 to open a lifetime ISA. But Hargreaves Lansdowne believes that actually this is something that the government could can consider extending. Yes. So the, one of the
0: big issues that the whole industry has been trying to tackle is that self-employed people just aren't saving enough for retirement. And they're afraid of putting their money into pensions because they tend to have lumpy incomes and they're worried that they'll lock it up and they won't be able to get access to it. So we think that the lifetime ISA could be a really good part of the solution. But in order to make it so, it, there are a couple of tweaks. And as you say, one of them is that it would need to to be sort of accessible to people who are a bit older. So we'd like to see that the age that anyone can open and pay into it go up to 55. And this is because actually self-employed people tend to be older than employed people. So it's something people go into later in life. And an awful lot of them were already over the age of 40 by the time the LISA came along. So by changing the rules, it would it sort of encompass all of these extra people as well.
2: Now, finally, we don't know for sure if the Chancellor will make an announcement about ISAs at the autumn statement on the 22nd of November. Obviously, we'll be debating it on our special Money Clinic episode if he does. But, Panel, if you had your hands on the red briefcase of power, what's the one thing that you would do to make ISIS more attractive? Starting with you, Jason.
3: It's a very simple thing. I would actually increase the allowance. It's been frozen now for six years. Were it to have been adjusted for inflation, it it would today in real terms, would be almost £26,000. So that is a very simple change that could could be made to restore the real value of the ISA.
2: Excellent. It would generate lots of headlines and boost the knowledge about ISAs more, I'm sure. Um, Sarah, what would you like to see? Well, it doesn't sound like it's a nicer change, but what we'd
0: really like to see is some concrete change on what's known as the advice guidance boundary. So it sounds particularly confusing, but it's really, a, it's around how much information a financial company that you use can give you before they cross over from guidance, which they can give to anyone, um, into financial advice, which is a whole other separate process. So we'd like companies to have the freedom to be more helpful. And that in turn, they'd be able to explain products better, they'd be able to direct people to the things that suit them. And then they, that would then, and encourage people to save and invest more. So it wouldn't just help them make sort of more informed decisions about, you know, ISIS themselves, but about everything. So pensions, ISAs, the lot. So we think that, that that will be a really, really big and important change. There's already been lots of discussions, but we'd just
2: like to see something concrete come together now. And last but not least, Brian, what's the one thing that you would like to see?
4: So I would future-proof the lifetime ISA by raising the £450,000 house price cap uh, with house price inflation on mm-hmm. an annual basis. And we would also introduce some sort of emergency access uh, without losing any of your, your own money and being penalized with, with your own money. So this would turn the ISA, younger ISA users into savers and investors for life
2: gets my vote. Mm. Well, I'll throw in one of my own for good measure. Although I have to say, lots of FT readers mention this on our original ISA story. Why call them ISAs? Why not call them tax-free accounts? Does what it says on the tin, saves you lots of tax. Times like these, maybe that will attract more people to try and find out more about how ISAs could work for them. Well. All that remains for me to do is to thank our fantastic panel of experts, Brian, Sarah and Jason. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And I hope that everybody listening has now got a much better handle on how cash ICES, lifetime ICES and indeed stocks and shares ICES could help you hit your savings and investing goals in future. That's it for Money Clinic with me, Claire Barrett, this week, and we hope you like what you've heard. If you did, spread the word and leave us a review. We're always looking to chat with people about their money issues for the show, so if you're interested in being part of a future episode, then email us. Our address is money at ft.com. You could also take a peek at our website, ft.com slash money, grab a copy of the FT Weekend newspaper, or follow me on Instagram. I'm at Claire B. Money Clinic was produced in London by Philippa Goodrich. Sound design is by Breen Turner and our editor is Manuela Saragossa. You heard original tunes this week by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. And finally, to repeat our disclaimer, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's all the small print for now. See you back here next week. Goodbye.
1: I'm Andrea, founder of a boutique handbag brand, Andy, and this is why I switched to Shopify. I tried three other platforms prior to Shopify, and I remember my breaking point was when I would try to make one little change and my entire site would go down. Shopify made it really easy for me to shift everything over and hit the ground running. I was able to migrate my products and all of my customer information over. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Go to shopify.com slash listen to take your business to the next level today.